The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Um, We're looking this morning at the final verses of chapter 12. Now, in this chapter, Lazarus is uh, summing up our Lord's public ministry in Jerusalem. This is the final week of the Lord's life, and He is drawing together three separate incidents in chapter 12. Number one, the story of Mary's extravagant worship of Yeshua as she took that costly perfume, broke it, and poured it out on Him as really an act of preparation for His burial. Remember that? That was seems like a long time ago. Uh, those are the first eight verses. And then we talked about the Lord's entry into Jerusalem in verses 9 through 19. And then the final verses, which really run from 20 all the way to 50, deal with the request of the Greeks to see Yeshua. Now, as I've told you before, some writers have called these first 12 chapters of this gospel the Book of Signs. Because it features seven miracles that Yeshua performed as proof of His deity. The proof that He is the Son of God. Now I'm sure you know by now that these signs were given so that they might believe. That's the purpose of the book. But Israel, for the most part, didn't believe. And in verse 37 he says, Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him. Now, the readers of the Gospel which would be us and everybody else who's read this, we're only going to read about the seven signs that Lazarus chose to put in this book. But to the Jews whom Yeshua was speaking, they'd seen these seven signs along with a lot of other ones. And they saw Him with their eyes. They were there. They witnessed these things. They saw Him heal the lame man. guy's been sitting there all his life at the pool, waiting for the angels to stir it, trying to get in. The Lord comes along and heals him. And it's just... No one, the authorities, instead of recognizing this is a sign of Messiah, they said, hey, you did this on the Sabbath. You can't be doing that stuff. You know, they were worried about their law being violated. And so they just kind of ignored him. He heals the blind man. Still, doesn't get it. They're, they're still blind, so they can't see it. And then he heals Lazarus. This is the kind of the grand finale of his miracles. He heals Lazarus after being in the tomb for four days. Then after that, the Lord prays and His Father thunders His voice from heaven speaking to His Son, and they still don't believe. Israel didn't believe because they couldn't believe because Isaiah had prophesied that they could not believe. So Lazarus says they couldn't believe in Him. They couldn't believe because Yahweh had not revealed Himself to them. He had not given them an understanding heart. Their unbelief was part of God's plan. He willed to make their unbelief the means by which He would provide salvation to the world. Because their unbelief led to the crucifixion. So Lazarus tells us they still did not believe in verse 37. Then he says in verse 39, they could not believe. And then in verse 42, he says, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Him. So, the majority didn't believe. But he says, nevertheless. This is a contrast to those who didn't believe. Many believed in Him. Despite this contrast, we've talked about this, many scholars and commentators say these authorities really didn't believe in Him. Which I think is kind of crazy. Why say they did? You know, they're really, I think, going against the text of Scripture. Commenting on these verses, John MacArthur writes, So they believed them, but believing them alone does not save. Then or now. Oh, really? So there's more than faith? Well, yeah, he would say that. But the text of the Word of God says they did believe. So who are you going to believe? Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. That's it, people. When you believe the Gospel, 
you are given eternal life. Now, we need to go over this again because this is so important. This is the gospel. How can, nevertheless, many believed in him mean the same thing as they did not believe in him? That's what they're saying, right? And they could not believe in him. See, they say verse 42 says they really didn't believe, means they really didn't believe. So all of this is about unbelief. So why does he use, why does he say some couldn't and some did? How can Lazarus say that some believed and some did not, but really mean nobody did? Does that make any sense? If these authorities didn't really didn't believe, why did he say they did? He could have said some pretended to believe. Some acted like they believed. He doesn't say that. He says these authorities fulfilled the purpose for which this gospel was written, that they would believe in him. Now let me remind you that the only reason these authorities believed in Yeshua was because God called them. We've got to keep that in mind, okay? John 6.37 All that the Father gives me will come to me. So who comes to Him? Well, the ones that have been given by the Father. And we talked about this in chapter 6. The Father gave a certain group of individuals to the Son as a love gift for His sacrifice. 6.44 No one can come to Me. Who can come to Him? Nobody. None of them. None. Unless, there's a condition here, unless what? The Father who sent Me draws Him. Draws again, helkuo, draw, draw by irresistible superiority. To come to believe, or to come to Him and believe in Him are the same thing. So he says, no one can come to me. He's saying, no one can believe in me. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, look at verse 35. Yeshua said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So no one can come to Him, or no one can believe in Him, unless they are drawn by the Father. And all the Father draws will believe in or come to Him. And they are given eternal life. So many, even of the authorities, believed in Him. Now, if the Scriptures say this, why do people say they're not believers? Why do they question it? Well, they question it because the authorities didn't perform the way that they thought a Christian ought to perform. They didn't do the things that these people thought, or these people think, that a Christian should do. It says, for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess Him. John Gill writes this, The many here spoken of seem to have had only an historical faith, as appears by what follows. See, because it says the fear of the Pharisees, that cancels out the first part of the verse. So he says they believe, but then he says they didn't really because they did this. So why did he say they believe? I mean, it doesn't, one doesn't cancel the other out. He's very clearly telling us these believe, but they didn't do this. So these new believers, and they were, they're brand new believers, they feared the Pharisees. So they didn't confess their faith in Christ. Now, let me just say here that the word fear is not in the text. Okay? not there. The Greek here, where they place the word fear, in the Greek, it's hiname. And hina is a purpose clause. So the purpose is that the Pharisees didn't confess him so that they wouldn't be put out of the synagogue. That's the, that's the purpose. They didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. That's why they wouldn't confess him. Now the King James Version here puts it this way. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. See, the idea of fear is not there. I think the idea of fear is implied, and so the translators added it. Although I don't think they should have, because it's implied. It's not in the text. And the translation should translate what's in the text. But all translators have their own bias, and so they kind of help us out, because they think we're really ignorant. Sometimes we are, so they help us out, and sometimes they're right in helping us out. Sometimes they're not so right, all right? But the word fear is used in 922 about the blind man's parents. Remember, they were afraid to confess because they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue also. 
Let's look at 9.22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Yeshua to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So the words confess and synagogue are used in both texts. Fear is in 9.22, and so they added it to 12.42. Now the reference to being put out of the synagogue in 12.42 is the same Greek word used here. The Sanhedrin had passed a law that anybody who confessed Yeshua to be the Messiah was to be put out of the synagogue. So the Greek word used here, aposunugagos, it means expelled from the synagogue, kicked out. It appears only in this Gospel in the entire New Testament and only three times in this Gospel. And so by the time this Gospel was written, this word was being used to describe Christians who had been expelled from worshiping God at the synagogue. Now, the first century historian, Flavius Josephus, he reported that Jerusalem had 130 synagogues, many of which formed around trade communities, which I think is a little weird. You know, the Baker's Synagogue, the Mason's Synagogue, they, you know, they form around these different trade unions. That's the synagogue, you know, that they worshiped at. He says that membership in one of the faith communities not only provided spiritual nourishment, a study of the scriptures. You know, if you wanted to study scripture, you went to synagogue. Because where else would you do? He said, well, I'll just pull out my phone and look at my Bible and study, right? No! They didn't have phones. They didn't have texts. They did not have Bibles, all right? There was few texts, and they wanted to study. They would go to the synagogue, and they would study there. So it was very important. It also provided a community support group, an extended family that made life easier in difficult times. I think you all understand that. You know, that's why we come together. A permanent expulsion from the synagogue resulted in a curse on the offender that left him or her completely isolated from the community. It wasn't like uh, here, you get kicked out, you just go down the road. There's another church, you can see you know, two churches from right here. It wasn't like that. You got kicked out, everybody knew about it. The excommunicated member could not participate in the religious services in the synagogue and was to be shunned when passed on the street. Since it was both a spiritual and an economic boycott, the person who was excommunicated was essentially dead to the community. It was just a scary thing. That's why the parents didn't want to say, they didn't want to be kicked out of the synagogue. They don't want to be isolated. It hurts you economically. It hurts you socially. It hurts you religiously. <clears throat> so hopefully you can see that to be de-synagogue was a big deal in that day. So these new believers kept their mouths shut because they didn't want to get kicked out of the synagogue. So because they didn't confess their faith, many say, therefore, they're not really saved. They really didn't believe. Well, that makes confession a condition of salvation. And most people are comfortable with that. They say, oh yeah, that, that is a condition. How many other conditions are there? And see, if salvation or confession is a condition for salvation, guess what? Lazarus messed up. He messed up. Because he wrote a book to tell you how to be saved, and he forgot an element that is necessary for salvation. Now, how dumb is that? I'm writing a book. So you can believe in Christ, and by believing you'll have eternal life, but I left out something, and hope you figure it out. No, that's ridiculous, people. That is ridiculous. <clears throat> the word confess is used in John's Gospel four times. Twice by John the Baptizer, who confessed he was not the Christ. So he's just saying, no, it's not me, I'm not him. It's used once in 9.22, we just looked at, the Pharisees warning them not to confess him. And it's used in our text. So the word confession, homilegeo, is never connected with faith or salvation in this Gospel. So that would make me think it's really not necessary because John's telling us how to be saved. This is the book everybody goes to when they, you know, somebody's interested in Christianity, or someone's a new Christian, read the Gospel of John, because John is to bring people to faith. 
And why have a book to bring people to faith and not tell them how to come to faith? John MacArthur writes this, If you do not believe in Jesus Christ and confess Him as Lord, and acknowledge His resurrection, and give Him your whole heart, submitting to Him as your Master, you do not believe in Him. Then you do not believe in the One who sent Him. You have no faith in God. So, MacArthur says, you got to confess Him, and you got to give your whole heart, and you got to submit to Him as your Master. So let me ask you, how many of you can say that you have totally submitted to Christ as your Master, and you live for Him with your whole heart, mind, and strength? Anybody? You know, I used to always have a problem singing, I surrender all. I mean, we'd sing that in church, and I'd be like, really? You're going to lie here in church in front of God and everybody? I surrender all. No, you, we could sing, I surrender sometimes. I surrender a little bit, but I surrender all. Really? Come on. Stephen Cole writes this, Unless they later became willing to confess Christ, whatever the cost, I contend that their faith was not saving faith. See, they, if you're not going to confess, you just don't get in. So to these guys make confession and many other things a condition of salvation. And I just think you're, you're on dangerous ground when you start saying, well, someone needs to do this and they need to do that. But Lazarus says that they did believe, but they didn't confess. Okay, same verse, people. Lazarus writes, many believed, they didn't confess. So did they really believe? Well, he said they did, but they didn't confess. So confession must not be necessary for salvation. Because he says in this same verse, they believed, but they didn't confess. Now hopefully, some of you Brians are thinking, well, doesn't Paul teach that we need to confess with our mouths in order to be saved? Does Paul say something like that? Romans 10, 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Yeshua is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, man believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Now, these are two of the most, I think, famous and familiar verses in the Word of God. If you ever took an evangelism course, you went over these verses. The word confess here is the Greek word homologeo, which means to say the same thing. So to confess that Yeshua is Lord is to say about Yeshua what God says about Him, what the Bible says about Him. It's to say the same thing. I'm saying the same thing God says. I'm saying He's Lord. Now the question is, do we have to publicly confess Christ to be saved? And some will say yes, because the text says if you confess with your mouth. They say that means you have to do it publicly. Is that what it means? Does this mean that you can't believe in Christ? Or you could believe in Christ, but you're not saved until you confess. So I trust Christ, and then I look, you know. And let me ask you this. How many people do you have to confess them to? I mean, one? Do I just got to tell somebody? Or a hundred? Or everybody? Or, you know. If this is a condition of salvation, tell me how exactly this confession works. Now, unfortunately, there are many who have come to think that the way to be saved is you believe in your heart, and then you get in the presence of a group and you make a public profession of faith. You raise your hand in the meeting. You come down front. Any of you ever done that? Come to the front. We're going to play 10,000 more verses of Just As I Am. I mean, I've been in church services where I'm thinking, they're not going to quit till everybody goes down there, so let's all get up and just go down there now. All right? I mean, seriously, I've seen it. Anybody have a mother? Come forward. Anybody have a father? Come forward. You know, they just keep going. They want everybody down at the altar. Because that is a... The altar call is a barometer on how well did I do. See, if I preach good, the altar's full. That's how you tell. Not too, not too much of a biblical system, but... <clears throat> This is not what Paul's talking about, okay? <laughs> Paul had no idea of a church meeting in which Just As I Am was played until people came down to the front. 
and people invited forward to publicly confess their faith in Christ. That's not what he's talking about. The reason for the emphasis upon belief and confession in this text is related to Deuteronomy 30, verse 14, which he quotes in verse 8 of Romans 10. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we're proclaiming. So here, both mouth and heart are mentioned. To the Jews, the mouth had to do with meditation. Now, does that sound 180 out from us? You think of meditation, you think of you just sit there quietly, thinking, contemplating. But the Hebrew word for meditate is hagah, and it means to emit a sound, to murmur, to mutter, to speak in an undertone. See, for the Hebrews, meditation was not silent. Again, this is very ob- this is very opposite of what we think. We think of meditation, you're just quiet, you know, you have your personal, private, quiet time. To the Hebrew, it was always vocal. Now, several texts uh, clue us into this. Let's look at some of them. Psalm 49.3 By my mouth shall speak wisdom, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. This is a Hebrew parallelism. It indicates that what is spoken with the mouth is the same thing as meditation. The mouth is meditating. That's why, you know, you got to confess with your mouth. It's talking about meditation. Psalm 19, 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and redeemer. Again, the words of my mouth parallels meditation of my heart. The idea is further seen in the words of Joshua. Now, this verse is a confusing verse. You know, it's just, we got to have a Hebrew mentality to get some of these things. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Now, in this context, meditate is defined by the command, the law shall not depart from your mouth. This negative way of speaking implies a strong positive. In other words, the law shall be constantly coming out of your mouth. That's what meditation is. They would talk out loud, they would communicate, they would say it out loud. So these passages give insight into what a meditation involves. It's the outward verbalizing of one's thoughts before God. It's pouring over His teachings and it works. It means to articulate thoughts of worship, wonder, and praise. So when they talk about the mouth, they're not talking about you know saying this in front of other people. That's how they meditated. The mouth is connected with meditation and saying these things. So, can you be saved if you don't confess Christ? For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Again, this idea over and over about belief alone. Now, if you say that confess means to agree with what God says about Christ, to agree with another, if you use the etymology of the word, and say, confess means you got to say what God says about Christ. Do you have to confess to be saved? Yes. Because you have to agree what the Bible says about Christ. If you disagree with that, you're going against, you can't believe. Because believing is believing what God said about Him. But here's the problem. People say that confess means to publicly acknowledge Christ. And they say that because the Bible uses the word mouth, and they don't understand the mouth is part of meditation. It doesn't mean going and talking to other people. They would say, yes, you can be saved. So, if they're talking about public confession, then yes, you can be saved and not publicly confess Christ. We see it right in this verse. Lazarus says, these guys have believed, but they didn't publicly confess it. So, why wouldn't these believers confess their faith? What was wrong? Well, it says they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. And here's what their problem was, people. Their faith was weak. They're brand new believers. They had weak faith. Let me tell you something. People have this idea there's a true faith and there's a false faith and that's all there is. Well, I talked to you about that. Faith is faith. Faith is believing something is true. The only, you know, it's the object you're trusting in that can be false. But if you're trusting in Christ, faith is faith. But the Bible speaks of little faith 
It speaks of great faith. It speaks of weak faith, strong faith, lacking faith, perfect faith, dead faith, full faith, growing faith, increasing faith. What I'm trying to say is there's degrees of faith. Okay? All believers don't have the same amount of faith. Some believers are weak in faith. Look what the Scripture says about Abraham. Romans 4.20 No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. To God. Abraham, he says, didn't have weak faith. His faith was strong. And I think this tells us there are degrees of faith. Now, our Lord charged the disciples in general, and Peter in particular, of having little faith. They had faith. But unlike Abraham, it was deficient in strength. Matthew 14, 31. Yeshua immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith. Why do you doubt? Little faith. As Peter focused on the circumstances around him, instead of on Christ, his faith grew weak. Any of you ever done that? You ever been in the midst of bad circumstances and your faith got a little weak? That's what happens when you take your eyes off the Lord. And you start looking at circumstances. See, those rulers of Israel who believed in Yeshua, they weren't ready to suffer for Him. They just weren't. And before we are too harsh on them, too critical of them, statistics tell us that only one out of 20 professing Christians share their faith. So we're not so different from the rulers that Lazarus speaks of. We believe in Yeshua as our Savior, and yet, At times, we keep it secret. We don't share our faith with the lost. So let's not be too quick to judge these guys. Now notice that Lazarus doesn't just say they believed in him. He says this. Many even of the authorities believed in him. Now by authorities here, this is the word archon, which probably indicates members of the Sanhedrin. Can you think of maybe two guys of power and influence that would fit into this category of not confessing Christ? Members of the Sanhedrin? How about Nicodemus? Chapter 3. How how did he meet the Lord? At night. Ah, We we don't want anybody to know this, but I'd like to talk to you, because he's interested. Okay? And also Joseph of Arimathea. They're both Pharisees. They're both members of Sanhedrin, but they're like, we've got to keep this on the down low. Look at this verse, John 19, 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Yeshua, but secretly. Ah, he's a secret disciple. Why is he secret? Notice what it says, for fear of the Jews. Well, I guess that in this category, in our text in John 12, we've got to say he's got to be talking about Joseph of Arimathea, at least one of these guys, right? Because he fits in perfect. He's a disciple, but he's he's one secretly. It's because of fear of the Jews. But he goes to Pilate, and he asks if he can take the body of Yeshua. And Pilate gives him permission, so he came and took away his body. So he's kind of coming out of his secrecy by doing something like this. This was a big risk. Mark tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council. And he also says, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. So here's somebody that's open to the things of God. Now think about this, all right? You got these guys on the Sanhedrin that many of them, he says, have believed in Christ. So if they're on the Sanhedrin and they're believers, aren't they in a position to maybe stop this arrest, this trial, and this crucifixion? I mean, if Nicodemus... And if Joseph would have stood up and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, I think we're being too harsh here. The Scriptures talk about Messiah, and this guy filled a lot of things. Maybe we should wait a little bit. Maybe we should not be too hasty here. They didn't do that. They didn't even confess him. And this silence, while cowardly, and a demonstration of weak faith, was part of the divine plan. They couldn't have stopped the crucifixion. All right? It was this silence which allowed Yeshua to be arrested, to be tried, and to be executed. Notice what Peter says in Acts 2.23. 
This Yeshua delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Their not confessing Christ was a part of Yahweh's eternal plan for their redemption, their own redemption. He had to die to redeem us. Now Lazarus goes on in the text to say, they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I think the New American Standard says praise here. They love the praise that comes. But the Greek word here for glory, it's a noun, is doxa. At first, this verb meant to, it meant to appear or to seem. That's what doxa meant. Then in time, the noun doxa, you know, words transform over time. You understand that? I mean, we see that in our English language, words that used to mean something, now they mean the opposite. All right? I mean, if I gave you a book and say, scan through this, you would think it meant just kind of flip through it. But scan 100 years ago meant to study thoroughly. Okay, the English word changes. And that's why when we're studying Scripture, we've got to find out what period of time was this word used, what did that word mean at that time, and understand that. That's why we've got to determine carefully the meaning of words. It's important. All right? So, it then came to mean um, <clears throat> to have an opinion. And in time, the noun was used only of having a good opinion about someone, and the verb came to mean praise or honor due to one of whom you had the good opinion. So you had a good opinion, so you would praise, you would honor that person, because you held a high opinion of them. That's what doxa came to mean. So these new believers, they loved the praise, they loved the honor, they loved the opinion of man more than the opinion of God. Now this is sad. I mean, they're more concerned about what men thought of them than what God thought of them, but have you ever been there? Now, in seeking to prove that these authorities were not believers, many would appeal here to uh, John 5.44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Now, I think that the second glory here in this text is a reference to Christ, who is the glory of God. So this verse says they couldn't believe, and our verse in 42 says they did. So there's a contrast there. But what if? Now, I'm just kind of thinking out loud here because um, <clears throat> maybe going on a limb when I find something that I can't back up from anybody else. But what if the second glory in our text is a reference to Christ as it is in 544? How many times in this gospel does Yeshua say that he came from God? And so the glory that comes from God. This could be a reference to Christ. In other words, they love the opinion, they love the praise of men more than they love Christ. See, the glory that comes from Christ, it could be a reference to Yeshua. So let me ask you this. At times, have you ever loved human opinion and praise more than you love Christ? Mark 12, 30 says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and all of your strength. Do you always love God with all your being? And let me ask you this, if you were bold enough, arrogant enough to say, yes, I love God with all my being all the time. I would ask you this, how is that evident? What if I looked at your life, what would I see that shows your love for God? How is it demonstrated? What does the biblical say? What does the Bible say? What's the biblical way of demonstrating the love of God? John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandment. So our love for God is not demonstrated by a warm, fuzzy feeling. I just have this tingly feeling about God. I heard someone describe in a, in a meeting once at church that when they got saved, that felt like warm honey was poured all over them. I just thought, yuck. You know, that's not salvation. It's not about, you know, and I mean, I'm not taking feelings away because I love worshiping the Lord tonight, and feeling is involved here. But listen, love is demonstrated in the Bible not by a warm, fuzzy feeling, not by this or that. It's by obedience to Him. And I think our love, like our faith, can be weak or strong. 
Look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 15. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? So Paul talks about loving more and loving less. And in our text, in 43, it says they love the glory, the praise, the honor that comes from men more than they love Christ. So I guess what's going on in our text is these new believers, they love praise, they love honor more than Yeshua. Now the words more than are from the Greek word malon, which is a comparative. It means to a greater degree. So they love the honor of these men more to a greater degree than they love Christ. And again, I'd have to ask us, have you ever kept your mouth shut about Christ because you were worried about what people would think of you? Well, these rulers were worried about much more than opinion, okay? By confessing Christ, they run the risk of losing their place of honor and their jobs and their friends and their place of worship and their everything, all right? Their faith was weak and their love for Christ was less than their love for man's approval. That happens, people. If we're honest, you know, we're not always willing to be martyred for Christ. You know, we hear these stories and I think, I don't know how I'd do in those situations. I don't know because I've never been there. You know, I want to think I'd do good, but to be honest, I don't know. All right. So, we're going to move to a new section now. All right. I think, hopefully I got all I can out of that. And it's just an important section because people run there, you know, to try to prove that you know, people can believe and not be saved because they don't do a bunch of other stuff. And, and I, I just don't think that the Bible teaches that at all. I think a Christian should live a righteous, holy life. No doubt about it. But don't, let's don't add anything to what the gospel already lays out. All right, so what we are doing now is moving to the very last section. If you remember back in verse 36, Lazarus tells us, when Yeshua said these things, he departed and hid himself. Right? So the Lord took off. Then in verse 37 through 43 of Lazarus' words basically explaining Israel's unbelief. That's what we've just been looking at. Here's what's going on with Israel. Here's their unbelief. Now in verses 44 through 50, our Lord's words that Lazarus uses here sum up the message of his public ministry. This is the end of it. Now, these are, it's not like our Lord is there and He comes up back on the scene and says these things. Lazarus is taking a summary of all the Lord's teaching in these 12 chapters and putting it at the end here. These are Christ's words, but we don't have a context for when He spoke these, who He spoke them to, anything. Lazarus is just grabbing these because they sum up the 12 chapters and He's putting them at the end to kind of close it out. There's nothing new in these verses. They're repetition of what you said many times. They're just a summation, so we're going to fly through them real quick because we've been over this many, many times, he's just wrapping up the book of signs before he moves on into chapter 13. So he says, And Yeshua cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Now, the first verb here literally means to cry out. (laughs) That's a problem with using the ESV. I don't have much to say because most of the time it's pretty accurate. Okay? So it says it, I mean, this is the literal rendering here. This was often used for a pro- proclamation of a prophet. This is what a prophet would do. Lazarus used the same verb of Yeshua when he cried out in the temple at the Feast of Dedication in chapter 7. He's just crying out. And all through this gospel, Yeshua claimed to be God's representative. He said that I don't know how many times. And he claimed to be so closely connected with God that to believe in Him constituted believing in God. To see Yeshua was to see Yahweh. He said, I and the Father are one. He said that to the Jewish leaders. Then he said this, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Now, can you remember back to chapter 5 what Yeshua said? Because this was a powerful verse in 5.23. He says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. 
Would you have a problem with me if I said that? In other words, you should honor me, me, Dave Curtis, as you honor God. You have, anybody have a problem with that? <laughs> Come on, people, wake up. I hope you'd have a problem with that, all right? This is extreme arrogance to say you've got to honor me as you honor God unless He is God. You've got to honor the Son the same way you honor the Father? That's strong, people. He goes on to say, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. See, the Tanakh teaches that Yahweh will not share His honor with another. Isaiah 42.8 So for Him to share His honor with the Son meant that the Son and the Father are one in essence. What man, what created being could say that we should honor Him just as we honor the Father? Clearly here, Yeshua is claiming to be Yahweh. They're one and the same. Now this message needs to be given to all the Jewish people. Okay? Uh, John Hagee needs to get this. Because he doesn't get it. Alright? He thinks the Jews don't need the Gospel. I mean, the Jews will say they believe in the God of Scripture, but they reject Yeshua as the Messiah. That means they don't know God. Rejecting Christ is rejecting the Father. Since Christ came to earth and started His ministry, you can't reject Him and believe in the Father. You can't do it. If you don't have Yeshua as your Savior, you do not have God as your Father. Look at 1 John 2.23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. How does Hagee not know that verse? Now, let me just clarify here. This does not mean that those who hold to modalism, you familiar with modalism? We've talked about it several times. Modalism teaches that Yeshua and the Father are merely different modes of the same God. In other words, He changes clothes, and now I'm the Holy Spirit, now I'm the Son. You know, it's one person just, you know, switching modes, basically. There's both a distinction between the Son and the Father in their substance, substance, and a unity between them in their essence. All right? Look at this verse, the first, the first verse we started off with. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God. That distinguishes Him from the Father. It can be with yourself, alright? This with infers a relationship, an interface, an interaction between the two distinct persons. There's a distinction. The Son, the Word, is distinct from the Father, but the statement that the Word was God shows that Yeshua is fully God. Yeshua plainly said that those who see Him see God. Because He is God. If you want to know what God is like, study the person of Yeshua from the Scriptures. That's why we should spend time in the Gospels. In the Gospels, we see our God. As He walked this earth, as He lived among us. No book in the New Testament is as emphatic as Lazarus that the role of Christ is to reveal the Father. That's his job. That's what he did. And guess what? We're supposed to be like Christ, so guess what we're supposed to be doing? Revealing the Father to the world. We do that perfectly. Not too often. Verse 46 says, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Now this verse picks up a theme that is common in Yeshua's preaching. He is the light of the world. A truth that has been repeated throughout this book over and over. He says in the very beginning, 1, 4, and 5, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Yeshua is called the true light. 1, 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. In chapter 3, 19-21, refers to Yeshua as the light. And then in chapter 8, He states this, Then Yeshua spoke to them saying, I am, and this is one of the I am statements, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Then in chapter 9, just before he opens the eyes of the man who was born blind, Yeshua says, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And he illustrated that by giving sight to a man who's blind. 
This light metaphor is steeped in old covenant illusions. Psalm 27.1 says, Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Again, over and over, Yeshua connects Himself with Yahweh, wanting us to see this, and it just blows my mind that people today will say, I don't think that Yeshua is God. I'm like, then you're confused. Because Yeshua said in John 8, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. I don't think it's an option, people. I think it's clear. Anyone who receives Yeshua moves from darkness and ignorance to light and truth and fellowship with God. Verse 47 to 48, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Now my words here is rhema. It's a reference to the spoken sayings of Yeshua. This would obviously include the I am sayings in this gospel. Because his mission is to reveal the Father, rejection of Yeshua means rejection of God. God's the judge who will judge anyone who disbelieves. Now notice what he says at the end here. He's going to judge him when? On the last day. The phrase the last day is used seven times in this gospel. It's used once of the last day of the feast. So that's particularly to that feast. It's used five times for the resurrection. The resurrection, he says over and over, is going to happen at the last day. And now here, the judgment's going to happen on the last day. Well, the Scriptures tell us that the resurrection, the judgment, and the second coming all are synchronous events. They all happen at the same time. So it's going to happen at the last day. When is that? Well, according to the Bible, when does the judgment take place? The judgment was to be at the last day of what? The Old Covenant Age. The new covenant is an everlasting covenant, which means there's no last days. There's no, there's no end times for Christianity. There's only end times for Judaism. It was going to be at the last day of the old covenant. And we know this happened in AD 70 with the destruction of the Jewish temple. The disciples knew that the fall of the temple, the destruction of the city, meant the judgment of God, the end of the old covenant age, and the inauguration of the new age. So, he's going to judge Israel. For their unbelief, in AD 70, He judged them. was destroyed. They have never sacrificed since. There's no priesthood anymore. It's done. And yet people are clinging to Judaism today. They've just reinvented it. They tweaked all the feasts. You know, a big part of all the feasts was a sacrifice. No more sacrifice. They tweaked everything. They just keep right on going in their blindness. 49 and 50 says, I have not spoken on my own authority. But the Father who sent me has Himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that His commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. See, all that Yeshua says, even how He says it has been commanded by the Father. And God's commandment which stands behind the revelation of Yeshua is and brings and leads to eternal life. The commandment Yeshua requires His disciples to keep is to believe in Him. That's the commandment. Hull Harris writes this. Note that Jesus does not say here that keeping the Father's commandment leads to eternal life, but that the commandment itself is eternal life. This is the commandment concerning what He is to say. Verse 49. That the Father has given to Jesus the words and works of Jesus that result from the commandment the Father has given Him are the source of eternal life in the world. So the themes introduced in the prologue, the themes that are repeated throughout the Gospel, are repeated in summary here of Yeshua's last words to Israel. Here he again goes over the themes of faith, first of all. He talks about faith, the need for belief in Yeshua the Messiah. He talks about the theme of Yeshua's relationship to God the Father. Big theme in this Gospel. Christ the incarnate Word is one with the Father. Yet though the Father and the Son are united as one, they are also distinct from one another. The Father commands and sends the Son. The Son is sent and obeys. The theme of light is seen here. Yeshua is the light of life of the world. The theme of judgment is here. It's going to fall on all men in accordance with whether they accept or reject the Son of God. So this brings the public ministry of Yeshua to a close. 
Nothing more is said by Yeshua to the people at large. These 12 chapters have been teaching the people the book of signs, demonstrating that He is the child of God. Now the remainder, the majority of the remainder of this gospel concerns Yeshua's words to His disciples in the upper room in preparation for His departure and return to the Father. And we're going to get the account also of the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. So now he moves, you know, as we jump into the next chapter, he's dealing with his disciples. He's communicating with them. He's teaching them. So the public ministry is now over. And when we get to chapter 13, we're moving into that of teaching with his own disciples. And we're going to look at that distinction again of that, the whole concept of, you know, what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for, Lord, the close of chapter 12. I just have been so blessed, Lord, by these 12 chapters and all that's in them. I've learned so much. Father, I thank you for it. I thank you we can study something written 2,000 years ago. But because it's alive and active, we still learn, we still grow, we still are changed from these words. Father, thank you for them. I ask that you'd give each and every one of us, Lord, the heart of Bereans, that we would not accept things we hear, we would study them out to see if they're so. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen.